If you know a bit about church history, you know that before Martin Luther became the father of the Protestant Reformation, he was a Catholic priest. As a part of his training, he spent years studying Greek, Hebrew, Latin, the church fathers, and the doctrine of the Catholic Church. He was obviously brilliant, devout, and very devoted to his studies, but his soul was troubled. He was burdened with the haunting sense that his sins were not forgiven. He felt God's judgment hung over him like a heavy weight. No matter what he did, he never felt the assurance that his sins were forgiven. In desperation, he went to Rome, hoping to find answers, but he came away even deeper in despair. Several years later, while studying the book of Romans, he encountered the phrase, the just shall live by faith. That's found in Romans 1.17. His eyes began to be opened and he saw clearly, finally, that God forgives us not because of anything we do, but solely on the basis of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He called that truth the gate to heaven. So it is not surprising that Martin Luther said that the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, was the most important article in the Apostles' Creed. He wrote, If that is not true, what does it matter whether God is Almighty or Jesus Christ was born and died and rose again? It is because these things have a bearing upon my forgiveness that they are important to me. To these words of Martin Luther, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, would shout a resounding amen. You see, it was as he heard Martin Luther's words on this matter of faith and sin that he felt his heart strangely warmed and the burden of his guilt that had plagued him for so many years just rolled away. When we come to the realm of the Christian life, it's all summed up in these seven words that we find here in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's certainly not how we think about things today, is it? Go to any Christian bookstore and you'll see a small shelf labeled Bible Doctrine or Theology. And then you'll see a huge section called The Christian Life. There you'll find books on prayer, growing in faith, enduring hard times, spiritual gifts, spiritual growth, overcoming temptation, sharing your faith, and growing in holiness. Then there are books on marriage, books for men, books for women, books on the family, raising children, overcoming addiction, forgiving others, spiritual warfare, singleness, sex, health, and purpose-driven life and the end times, just to name a few. To us, the Christian life is all about these different categories. But the Apostles' Creed takes the whole Christian life and boils it down to this one essential thing. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. As if to say, if your sins are forgiven, everything else it's just details. And if your sins are not forgiven, nothing else really 
matters. I find that a really liberating way to look at the Christian life. It's simple, it's clear, and it's direct. So let me ask you a question that I'm planning on asking you again at the end of this message. Are your sins forgiven and do you know it? I'm going to repeat that. Are your sins forgiven and do you know it? And today using Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 as a guide, I want us to examine three questions about forgiveness that every one of us needs to ask and receive an answer to if we're going to join Martin Luther and John Wesley in the fullness of the Christian life. Hear these words from the 130th Psalm, the third and fourth verses. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The first question I want to ask this morning that we need to answer is why do we need forgiveness? This is something we hear a, a lot in a lot of different ways today. Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? The novelist Franz Kafka wrote in his diary that the problem with modern people is that we feel like sinners, yet independent of guilt. We sense that something is haywire in our lives, something is wrong. We live in a society that tells us, get rid of the guilt by getting rid of the rules that make us feel guilty. So we do our best to ignore things like the Ten Commandments. All those thou shalt nots make us nervous, and why not? Guilt comes when you break the rules and you know it. So the best way to get rid of guilt is to get rid of the rules, or so we think. We do away with the rules, but the rules won't go away because they weren't written by humankind in the first place. It's as if they are written in indelible ink. Even when you try to erase them, the image keeps coming back. It's written on our heart. And so we cheat and steal and lust and sleep around. We mock God by killing the unborn and trying to redefine marriage to fit our own twisted desires. But the rules do not change. You cannot get rid of guilt by pretending the rules aren't there anymore. When God made the rules, he didn't ask for our opinion. I read something this morning that said, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And uh, to, you know, the thing is, is that God is the only one that can really do that. God has spoken and he did not stutter. Thou shalt not still means thou shalt not. Even so, we feel like we can ignore the rules and get away with it. At the heart of the great culture war that's taking place in the United States right now, is the question of who makes the rules that really matter, God or us. That's why we're having battles at the ballot box and in the courts as to who can marry whom, gender identity, etc. 
We already know the truth about these issues because God has revealed the truth in his word. Votes and judges cannot change the truth any more than they can cancel the law of gravity. In spite of that, in today's society, if we don't like a rule, we vote it down or we simply say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and no one can stop me. So we make up the rules as we go along and true moral guilt goes out the window. But it's never as simple as that. After we've changed the rules so we can do what we want, we're still not happy. We've relativized the rules, normalized guilt, but still something is wrong. Despair, shame, restlessness, dissatisfaction are rampant. Kafka was right. We feel like sinners, but independent of guilt. We know something is wrong with us, but we don't know what, and we don't know how to fix it. Psalm 130 points us in the right direction, though. This psalm has a long history in the Christian tradition. It's called De Profundis, a Latin phrase that means out of the depths, taken from verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The whole psalm teaches us that we will never fix ourselves because we lack the inner resources to solve our own problems. That flies in the face of Oprah and Dr. Phil and a host of other self-help gurus who say that the answer is within us. The Bible says the opposite is true, that the problem is within us. The answer lies outside of us. As long as you think you can solve your own problems, you can only get worse. When you finally say, Lord, please help me. I can't do it on my own. Then, and only then, you're a good candidate for salvation. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So why don't we confess our sins and find the forgiveness we need? I'll tell you why. We fear punishment. We're afraid to admit our sin because then we would have to accept that what God's word says about sinners and the judgment. We don't want to accept this for ourselves, and we surely don't want to accept it for those we love. So we lie about our lies and we cover up our cover-ups. We pretend that we didn't do what we know we did. No wonder we're so messed up. We think guilt is a bad thing, so we avoid guilt at all costs. Our children learn to make excuses by watching us make excuses. We blame everyone except ourselves. But Psalm 130 liberates us from that self-destructive cycle. Verse 3 says that God doesn't keep a record of our sins. In the Hebrew, it literally says that God doesn't keep an eye on our sins. That is, He's not looking for a reason to send us to hell. Many people picture God as some kind of cranky old man with a long white beard, hoping to catch us messing up so he can send us to hell. But that's not the God of the Bible. 
He is willing to forgive those who repent of their sin and cry out for mercy. We need forgiveness because we are sinners who try to change the rules so we can dodge the guilt question. But since the rules cannot really be changed, we end up extremely messed up on the inside. Now here is the bottom line. We need forgiveness and we cannot really live without it. Without forgiveness, we are hollow men and women, empty and conflicted on the inside. Second question that we really need to answer. What hope do we have of forgiveness? By that I mean, what are the chances that we can be forgiven? Is it just a distant dream, some kind of long shot? If the Vegas bookies laid odds on our forgiveness, what would the number be? Look in the mirror and consider your own soul. If you do, the outlook will not be hopeful. One British writer put it this way, There is no man, and I will add, or woman, who, if all his or her secret thoughts were made known, would not deserve hanging a dozen times a day. The first part of verse 4 brings us some very good news. But with you, there is forgiveness. Or to put it another way, God makes a habit of forgiving sin. He does not delight in punishing our sin. He looks for chances to forgive us because forgiveness is in his nature. I love where it says in our communion liturgy, But thou, O Lord, art the same God whose property is always to have mercy. That made so much to me whenever I thought some of my sins were too great to receive God's forgiveness. It's his property. It's a part of him to always have mercy. That's a huge insight because it's going to touch how you see God. God is eager to forgive. He is ready to forgive. He wants to forgive you. Exodus 34, 6-7 calls him the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you are in the pit, you need to know that sin is real. You can't break the rules and get away with it forever. But whenever you are ready to come clean, the Lord is right there waiting for you. It's never easy to confess your sins, but listen to the invitation that God makes in Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Okay, so maybe you don't like the word wicked or the word evil. Maybe that sounds harsh to you. Maybe it's too politically correct for you, but that's God's description of the whole human race. That's what you and I 
apart from God's grace are like. We are wicked and evil. Get used to it because that's the plain truth about all of us. Don't get hung up on the negative words and miss the invitation. Turn to the Lord and you will find mercy and pardon. Picture two doors with two words uh, written across the top of each. On door number one, above that door, it says evil and wicked. Above door number two, it says mercy and pardon. Now tell me, which door do you like better? Well, I like mercy and pardon better, and I suspect you probably do too. God says you have to go through the door marked evil and wicked to get to the door marked mercy and pardon. Because you see, actually, we are born entering door number one. We live in a fallen world and we fit right into it very, very early in life. You can't skip door number one. And God says that that's the, that's the way it is. You know, a lot of you may want to skip door number one, go directly to door number two, but it doesn't work that way. You can't skip the door number one. The only way to reach door number two is to go through door number one first. Now, you've got to realize and confess and admit that you have gone through door number one because door number two is actually on the other side of door number one. Now then, when you go through door number two, you will discover that he will freely pardon. Freely means without cost to you. It cost God a lot. It cost him the life of his only begotten son. But for you, no charge. You want mercy? You've got it. You want pardon for all your sins? It's yours. You can go in evil and wicked and you come out with mercy and a full pardon from the Lord. That's the best deal in the world because you see, this is just it. Jesus is door number two. Remember what he said in John 10 verse 9? I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The third and last question that we need an answer to and that we need to be able to give an answer to other people about, and that is what happens when we are forgiven? The last part of verse four has the answer. Therefore, you are feared. Another way to say that is therefore we worship you. Once we are forgiven, that vague feeling of unease is removed. Our slate is wiped clean. The prison cell swings open and we walk out and we're free at last. Sometimes it's the hardest part to accept. Shame works in all of us to keep us in bondage. The devil whispers to us, you're no good. If people knew what you are really like, what you've done, they'd have nothing to do with you. 
How can you call yourself a Christian, you hypocrite? The only way to deal with Satan's accusations is to go back to the character of God with you. There is forgiveness. It is your property to always have mercy. Have you ever worried about the day when you stand before the Lord? Some Christians fear that God is going to project all their sins, even the sins of the mind, on some huge screen for the entire universe to see. We have this mental image of God pressing a button, and then our life begins to unfold on a giant screen so huge that millions of people can see it. We fear that, and we fear that in that day, all our ugly words and deeds, all our secret sins that no one else even knew about, and every dark thought filled with anger, lust, pride, hatred, rage, and greed will be displayed for the whole universe to see. How could we endure such a moment? And how could God ever welcome us into his kingdom after putting our depravity on public display? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, if you gazed on our sins, who could stand? No one. We'd all be doomed and damned. But that's the whole point of Psalm 130. We cry from the depths of shame and guilt, and God says, Good news. With me, there is forgiveness. The Bible addresses how God's deal with our sins over and over. Listen, first of all, in Isaiah 44, 22, he says, God blots out our sins as a thick cloud. And then in Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, God forgets our sins and remembers them no more. Isaiah 38, 17 says, God puts our sins behind his back. And Micah 7, 19, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea. And finally, Psalm 103, 12, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. You know, when God forgives, it, all these different passages say, he forgets our sins. He clears the record. He erases the tape. So that when he pushes the button, nothing shows up on the big screen in heaven, except maybe one word. Whenever Jesus was hanging on the cross, we read that the last word that he said before he died was, it is finished. That word is an accounting word. It's a Greek word, tetelestai, and it means paid in full. You see, our sins are forgiven. Jesus paid in full all of our debt, all of it, no matter how horrible it was. It's forgotten, removed, buried, and blotted out. We can never be condemned by them again. I ask you to let that thought grip your very soul, and when you do, you will never be the same. But how could it be that way? How could God forgive us? Why doesn't he look at our sins? And here's the answer. A long, long time ago, 
God fixed his gaze on the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are honest enough to admit that we are wicked and evil, a stream of mercy flows out from the cross of Christ, and our sins are covered by his blood. We discover in one shining moment that with God, there is forgiveness. That's why Luther said this was the most important part of the Apostles' Creed. That's why this is the only part of the Christian life that's mentioned in the Creed. This is the whole ballgame right here. Everything else is just details. If you are full of vague uneasiness because of the way you've been living, if you are guilty and don't know what to do about it, if you're in the pit of despair, you don't have to stay there. Run to the cross. Run. Don't walk. Run to the cross and lay hold of Jesus. Trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. With God, there is forgiveness. That is why the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And this is why we stand and say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Nothing is more important. So I come back to the question I asked earlier. Are your sins forgiven? And do you know it? I love the old hymn, Softly and Tenderly. One of the verses goes like this. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. And then the chorus makes an appeal. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. That invitation is for all of us. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. God has done everything necessary for you to be completely forgiven. All you have to do is come. Come home to God. Come in Jesus' name. Come by the way of the cross and you will be forgiven. If you come in through door number one, you'll find Jesus as you pass through door number two. May I suggest a simple prayer for you today? Even while I encourage you to pray this prayer, I caution you that saying words alone will not save you. Prayer does not save. Only Christ can save. But prayer is a means of reaching out to the Lord in true saving faith. If you pray these words in faith, Christ will save you. You can be sure of that. Now I'm going to say the words, and if you would like to pray this prayer to receive God's forgiveness, I ask that you just repeat it after me. I'm going to just go a phrase at a time so you can pray along with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner 
and I know that I cannot save myself, I'm no longer going to trust in my good works, or am I going to trust in my religion for salvation? By faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sins away. With all my heart, I confess you as Lord and Savior, both now and for eternity. Amen. Did you pray that prayer? If you prayed it and really meant it, welcome to the family of God. Now, one final word. Sometimes Christians can hear a message like this and wonder how to apply it. If you already know the Lord, let me tell you how to apply it. Get on your knees and say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins. Or stand up and say, I bless the Lord for taking my sins away. Don't take your forgiveness for granted. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If God has forgiven your sins, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. This is the good news of the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.